If you would take a Bible, please, and turn to John chapter 1. Page, I believe it's 886 in your pew Bible. We're going to be looking at verses 35 to 51, although I'm only going to read verses 43 to 51. That's what we'll spend uh, uh, the majority of our time is in that section. <coughs> the last sermon of, of 2018 and the first few of, of this year may have seemed to you to be a bit of a hodgepodge. They aren't. Uh, we've, rather than doing some preaching right through a book, we've kind of chosen some topics that we wanted to preach on to you as a congregation, and uh, we've done that. And this morning, uh, the topic is really evangelism. Uh, The first five chapters of the book of John are Jesus's methodical teaching to us about what evangelism looks like. There's a lot of really different stories. He's speaking to individuals, and sometimes he's speaking to groups of people. And he gives us methods by which we understand evangelism. So the passage this morning is not the only way to look at it, but it is a way to look at it in a way that I think we really need today. Uh, Many of us feel very guilty about the fact that we don't do evangelism. We don't feel that we're good enough, and I don't think that's the proper response for us. I think we need to understand it better, and Jesus gives us a great teaching of that this morning. So let me read for us John chapter 1, beginning in verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would teach us now from your word. Would you open the truth of your word to us now, to our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you come and minister to us, encourage us, exhort us, and train us unto evangelism? Lord, thank you that you called us to seek you. You have now called us to follow you, and that we would finish that by inviting others to come and see themselves. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you really never know what God's going to use to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. He uses a multitude of different ways. <laughs> if each of us just took a moment to walk up to this microphone and share your testimony, we would have as many different stories as there are people. There'd be some similarities between the stories, yes, but there'd be drastically different accounts of how you came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. Some of you were converted under the preaching and teaching of someone. It was in a church service that that the Lord God called you to himself. Some of you was just in the reading of God's word, maybe in your own room. You just, you opened the Bible and began to read and were converted. Others view us through a campus ministry. Some of you was other deep pain and suffering that the Lord met you there. The ministry of an individual, the ministry of a church, the list could go on. (laughs) But it's important for us to tell these stories to hear and know the testimony of our friends 
to share our own testimony with others, to look into the scriptures and see a diversity of testimonies. Paul has this elaborate uh, road to Damascus experience, and somehow we think that's got to be the template for how it really happens. There doesn't seem to be a template. God uses many different ways. Some of you have the testimony that's no less gracious and wonderful that I really don't remember a day that I didn't know Jesus and love him and trust him and follow him. That's wonderful too. (laughs) We need to know these testimonies because for many of us, we have family members that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. There's someone in your life that you love deeply and you're concerned about them. That may be a child or a parent or a dear friend or a neighbor that does not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and as of now are dead in their trespasses and sins. Maybe you have a child who grew up in this church. They learned the catechisms. You prayed for them. Yet, as they've gone off to college and beyond, they've walked away from the faith and are no longer a part of a church. Maybe you have a father like I do who prayed over your dinner table every single night, who drove me to church, who read the Bible to me, yet as he has gotten older, his heart has grown cold to Jesus to the point where he seems to want nothing to do with him at all. You may have a spouse, the person that you love the most in life, who wants nothing to do with Christ at all. And so we need to hear these stories and understand evangelism from the Scriptures that it might give us hope, that hope indeed is not lost for those that we love the most in this life. These encounters with Jesus, as I mentioned before, in chapters 1 through 5 of John, show us the multitude of ways that God calls people to himself. There's not a template, okay? He does it in, many, in a variety of ways, and we're going to look at one such way this morning. The motif that John has started with begins back in verse 18, if you'll take a look at it. <coughs> he says, verse 1 through 14 kind of stand by themselves. It's this great understanding of Jesus putting on flesh. But in verse 18 it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This invisible God has now been made visible in the person of Jesus Christ. There's something that we can see now that we couldn't see before. There were shadows and and implications in the Old Testament, and it's now abundantly clear come the New Testament. It's that idea, this come and see, this refrain that Jesus and others will use throughout this book. There's something physical to see, but there's also something very spiritual to see. So three points, as usual this morning. Number one is seeking, number two is following, and number three is inviting. It's a progression that we go through. First, we seek the Lord Jesus Christ. We are changed in the inner man. We seek him. Secondly, as a result of that, we then follow him. We dedicate our lives to him. And then lastly, we then invite others to come and see as well. It's a progression that you go through, but it's also, you ought to see all three of these in your life at all times. I'm seeking him. I'm following him, and I'm inviting others to come and see themselves. So number one, seeking. We're going to blow through these first two points and then spend a long time on the third. So we're going to get through point two, and you're going to think to yourself, wow, this is a really short sermon, and then we're going to slow down, just so you know. (coughs) God has put on flesh and is now dwelling among mankind. This eternal word word of God, put on flesh, dwelling amongst ordinary people. And John the Baptist is standing there, and he sees Jesus walk by, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. He says something similar to this in verse 29, where he adds, Who takes away the sin of the world. And upon hearing this, 
two men that were with John the Baptist stop following John the Baptist and start following Jesus. John the Baptist, this, this amazing description of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, what would they... I guess they knew something about what John was saying. Well, they did. They knew that John is referring back to the Passover, this Passover lamb and the blood on the doorframe. John the Baptist is saying, there he is. That's the one all that was talking about. Here he is right now in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Put your hope in him. And because of this, these two disciples begin following Jesus. Jesus notices that they start following him and turns around and says, what are you seeking? Or to put it in our American terms, hey, what do you want? What are you doing? Why are you following me? It's a, it is a question, but it's, there's a question underneath the question. What are you seeking? What are you really after? Guys, do you even know what you're really after? And they're like, uh, where are you staying? <laughs> it's not really what they wanted to know. But they do follow Jesus. They spend some time with him, and then they make this wonderful proclamation, we have found the Messiah. There's something that Jesus had or Jesus told them, or insight that he gave them that makes them make this profession of faith. They become to see. They saw Jesus for who he really was. The come and see refrain of the book of John is one of spiritual exploration. New life in Christ begins with God asking you, what are you looking for? What do you seek? I can fulfill you. I can meet your needs. But let me show you what you really need. I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was Christ seeking them, and then therefore they sought him in return. So secondly, following. We seek after Jesus, and then once we find him, we're giving new eyes to understand who he is. We then begin this, life, this Christian life, the normal Christian life of following him. So Andrew follows after Jesus. In verse 41, he says, he goes to see Peter, his brother. P Peter, we found the Messiah. So this, this evangelistic effort has begun. Andrew goes and gets his brother Peter and says, come here, come and see this Jesus. He's the one we've been looking for. Now the author does not identify who this other disciple is. That's because the author is the other disciple. John often, in fact, I don't know that he ever refers to himself as John. I'm the beloved disciple. I'm the other disciple. He's, he's speaking of himself in the story. When Jesus calls you, he changes you. He gives Peter a new name. He gives him a new trajectory in life. That's not who you are anymore. You're now a rock, Peter, which doesn't seem to ever really be something we could use to describe Peter accurately, but that's who you are. When he calls us and seeks us, he says, now follow me. I'm going to give you a new trajectory in life. I'm going to fulfill you in ways that you've never imagined before. We seek and then we follow. It's not negotiable. It's not, I want my sins forgiven, and now I can do whatever I want. It's, your sins are forgiven, and now you follow him. You go where he wants you to go. You do the things he wants you to do. You live in the manner he wants you to live. Follow me for these first disciples meant going wherever Jesus went. It meant often not knowing where their next meal would come from. It meant constant travel, preaching and ministering to people that wanted nothing to do with them. Eventually, it would mean watching this Rabbi, the Son of God, that they began to know, go to a cross and to die. Being a follower of the king means doing what the king says. No matter if you don't want to do that. No matter if the culture says, oh, that's really outdated. We do what the king says. And how do we know what he says? Well, he tells us in his word. If we don't know that, if we hadn't hidden that in our heart, then we're not going to know how we ought to follow him. 
Have you ever noticed how Jesus does not use the language that we often use of coming to faith in Christ and following him? Jesus never says, just rest in all the things that I've done for you. Jesus doesn't say, just get comfortable with the fact that you're saved. That's what the Christian life is. He doesn't say, invite me into your heart and desire a personal relationship with me. When Jesus describes a Christian life, he says, follow me. Do what I tell you to do. Worship me. It doesn't mean that those other things are incorrect. It means they're incomplete. That's not, what, that's not in totality what the Christian life is. The Christian life is to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is not an add-on to the Christian life. It is the Christian life itself. Lastly, and where we'll spend the bulk of our time, is inviting. Verses 43 to 51. Philip has since joined this growing group of disciples who are now following Jesus. Philip now finds a man named Nathaniel. Okay, this evangelistic effort is going well, right? Nathaniel, you may not know this, I certainly didn't until I began to study this passage, he goes by a different name in the other Gospels. Nathaniel is Bartholomew. Okay, we'll see Nathaniel again in chapter 21, and he's listed in the, in the list of 12. It's the same person. And now Philip, with enthusiasm, tells Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip is expressing a great truth here. Moses and the prophets, Old Testament stuff, has been telling us about this Jesus who is now here. All that stuff has been pointing us forward to Jesus all along. And what's Nathaniel's response? He's not impressed. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then how does Philip respond? Why don't you come and see, Nathaniel? Why don't you come and see for yourself? So Nathaniel is a skeptic at this point, isn't he? He doesn't know about Jesus. Other men have been looking for him. Nathaniel's not. He's had someone reach out and say, would you come and see this person that I know to be the Lamb of God and the Son of God? I want you to meet him. Jesus shows that he knows Nathaniel. Nathaniel makes this magnificent profession of faith. Jesus says, don't be impressed that I knew something about you, Nathaniel. You will see greater things than these. See is the key word there. You will see something. Was it just about him putting his eyeballs on Jesus? No, Jesus is saying, you will spiritually see something you were not able to see before. There's a spiritual sight that Jesus is talking about here. But I want to dwell for a moment on how Philip has interacted with with Nathaniel, because that's going to really help us, I think. Come and see, Nathaniel. Verbalize your doubt to Jesus. He can answer your objections. Give your skepticism. He knows what you're really looking for. Come and see Nathaniel. Philip does not argue with Nathaniel. He does not cajole him in any way. He does not give his apologetical presentation. No, he just says, come and see. Come and see the Savior. As if to say, I don't, look, look, Philip, look, Nathaniel, I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers to the questions that you have. But would you come and see this Savior that we have? If you want someone to taste some food that you think is really delicious, what do you say to them? Just take a bite. You're going to love it. You're going to love this meal. It's fantastic. If you want someone to love a new television show that you've been watching for the last five seasons, what do you say to them? Just one episode, you'll be hooked. Just please, one episode and I promise you'll love it. What do you do when you want someone to like something that you like or see the value in it that you see? Give it a try. Come and see is essentially what you're telling that person. Would you come and see this? 
In the same way, this passage is telling us, invite your non-Christian friends, your neighbors and your co-workers to come and see. Would you, would you come, friend, would you come in to First Presbyterian Church with me for the next four weeks? Would you listen to the preaching there? Would you meet the people that I love and spend time with? Would you hear the word, word read? Maybe we could have lunch afterwards and we could talk about the things that we have heard together. Could you do that? Could you invite someone to come and see? You can put the pressure on us as pastors. We're the ones that got to preach the sermons. You don't have to answer all the questions. You can invite them to come. And in the days that they come, they will hear of Christ. They will sing about him. They will read about him. And perhaps it will be the day that they hear, follow me. Philip really replies with a great answer. He just tells Nathaniel, come and see Jesus, would you? Now, some of you would like to raise your hand with an objection here, and I understand the objection. Well, it was really easy for Philip, wasn't it? Because he got to invite Nathaniel to literally come and see Jesus, to go over to Jesus' house and talk to him. We can't do that. I can't take you over to Jesus' house this afternoon and introduce him to you. But we still can see Jesus because he reveals himself to us in his word. It's no less him. Your friends and family members can come and see him in the preached word. He can see him as they read it. It's his word, and he reveals himself to us. Because again, this isn't physical language here. This is spiritual language. We want them to have their eyes, their spiritual eyes and hearts opened to who Jesus is and what he can do for them. The seeing is something deeper than physical, and it's what Jesus is implying throughout this passage. I'm like you. I'm a pastor, but I get uptight about sharing my faith too. It's uncomfortable. What if they ask me something that I don't know the answer to? But I think we have a problem that we need to get cleared up. We think that people are naturally in their unconverted state, unspiritual people, and that's just not true. People are spiritual. They may be spiritual unto faith in Jesus Christ or spiritual unto idolatry, and they don't, they don't love God. But all people are spiritual people. Or we tend to think that it's upon us to convince someone that Christianity is true. And Christianity is really unattractive, and so we need to make it attractive to the person so that they'll want to be a part of it and believe. But this is also false and incorrect. It's one of the points, I think, that's really driving Andy Stanley's new book, Irresistible. Maybe you've read it. I commend two book reviews of it, both given by Mike Kruger. He's the president of RTS in Charlotte. On his blog, on his site, michaeljkruger.com, he, he writes a review upon this book. In the book, Andy Stanley says this, We, meaning the church, have been on the wrong track, and we need to change if we're going to reach the next generation with the gospel. What's the wrong track? Well, he explains it's that modern Christianity relies too much on the Old Testament. And so he asked church leaders, would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things Old Covenant? It's necessary, he believes, because when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. Simply put, says Stanley, when people struggle to believe, the Old Testament is usually the culprit. In essence, Stanley is pinning virtually all the major problems of the Christian faith directly upon the Old Testament. Once upon a time, he says, there was a version of our faith that was practically irresistible, and we need to go back to that. 
Here we see one of Stanley's consistent messages, namely that a Bible-centered faith is not the solution, it's the problem. They didn't have a Bible in the early church, so we're told, which is incorrect, by the way, and I do not have time to develop that point. And they did just fine without it. Stanley believes that a Bible-centric faith undermines our credibility and our evangelistic effectiveness. In other words, the Bible hinders evangelism. First Pres, that is wrong. Unequivocally wrong. The Bible is where we invite people to come and see Jesus Christ. It's, it's where they come and meet him. It's where they come and see spiritually, we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to believe in him even for the first time. And if we follow Stanley's logic, well, what happens when the New Testament falls out of rapport with the, with the culture? Are we just going to kick that to the curb as well? And what about all the mentions in the New Testament of Old Testament passages? <laughs> what do we do? We may see a book like that and recognize its error. But here's the error I think we make in this room. We may not deny the validity of the Old Testament, but we certainly deny that the power of God is in the message of the gospel. We deny that. We deny that when we think, I've got to argue them into the kingdom of God. That if the person that I'm ministering to does not believe, it is my fault. That's not right, First Press. The power is in the message that you deliver. The changing of the hearts and souls is up to the Holy Spirit and not you. Now, that doesn't mean we just go in there without thinking about it or praying over it do whatever we want. No. But we relieve the results up to him. J.I. Packer says in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, the root of the confusion, and, and I would add to his definition, the guilt. So the root of the confusion and guilt that we feel in regards to evangelism and our widespread and persistent habit of defining evangelism in terms not of a message delivered, but of an effect produced in our hearers. We tie evangelism to the effect. Evangelism is the message proclaimed. And so when we do that, we paralyze ourselves with fear and guilt. Well, goodness, if, if I don't do this right, this person is ruined. Well, no, they're not. Some of us are really crafty and good at answering objections. Some of us are better at tender interaction with one person, and that's okay. We assume that we must all do this as separate individuals sharing the gospel, and we're gripped with fear, but it was never meant that we would do this in isolation. It says in 1 Peter, we're to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Peter's saying, y'all need to give an answer for the hope that is in you, not you individual people need to do that. Yes, there's an individual application, but it's, it's a call to, to y'all to do this, to all of us. You know, I think we have this picture that we're all supposed to go out of the back of the church this morning with our sword and shield in hand, and us as individuals conquer the world. No, we do this as a collective unit. If you have a family that you want to minister to and share the gospel with, it's okay if you invite another Christian family along and you invite them over and the three of you couples minister to this family. Because undoubtedly one of you is going to be better at answering the hard objections, the skeptical questions. And then the wife is going to share at some point during the meal, you know what, we had a miscarriage three months ago. And then one of you is far better equipped to step in and say, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. And you know that the gospel has resources of peace and comfort that can't be found anywhere else. The objection answer is evangelizing, and the tender person in relationship is also evangelizing. 
Opening your home to people can be a part of evangelism. You see how we need to broaden the definition, okay? And it's about the message we give, not just the results that are seen. J.I. Packer, once again, from his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. According to the New Testament, evangelism is preaching and teaching the gospel. It is a work of communication in which Christians make themselves mouthpieces for God's message of mercy to sinners. Anyone who faithfully delivers that message, and under whatever circumstances, in a large meeting, in a small meeting, from a pulpit, or in a private conversation, is evangelizing. And the way to tell whether, in fact, you are evangelizing is not whether conversions are known to have resulted in your witness. It is to ask whether you are faithfully making known the gospel message. What do we need to do in 2019? We need to love our neighbors and friends. We need to invite them to come and see. So here's a challenge for us today. I'm including myself in this challenge. Would you, some, sometime in the next two weeks, invite someone to this church to come and see? To come and see about Christianity. Do you know any non-Christians? Do you have someone that you could invite? Or, or maybe non-Christian is not the right term. Maybe someone that is unchurched, we, we would say. To invite them to come and listen to the sermons and read the scriptures and to, and to sing the songs and so that you might speak with them afterwards. This is not the end of the account. Philip invites Nathaniel to come and see, and soon after Jesus sees him walking towards him, and he shouts from a distance, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel's a little taken aback. How do you even know me? Well, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree, and I saw you. Well, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Well, very likely, based on the reference to the story of Jacob at the very end of this section, we think there's a reference to Jacob right here as well. If you remember, Jacob's name means deceiver, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Quite literally, in the Hebrew, would say, an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. Jesus is saying to this man, I think he's paying him a compliment. I don't think he's patronizing or in any way. I like this guy, Nathaniel. He's a straight shooter. He tells it like it is. He's complimenting the man. Jacob, of course, was a deceiver. He's constantly deceiving people and being deceived himself. So it's almost like Jesus is saying, there he is. There's actually an Israelite there who has no deceit in him. How do you know me, Nathaniel answers. Jesus saying that he saw him under a fig tree before Philip called him evokes this really unusual profession of faith. Well, what, what, what happened here? That dawn on you as you're reading this passage, why did he respond that way? Well, you can read all the commentaries in the world, and it's pretty inconclusive. Was it Jesus having some supernatural knowledge of who Nathaniel was? Maybe. But whatever it is, I don't think our lack of precise understanding affects the passage in any way. Whatever it was, Nathaniel is in an amazement at what Jesus has said to him because he knows everything about him. The center of what it means to be a Christian is to know that Jesus knows you. He knows everything about you. And he loves you and has called you to himself. Nathaniel makes this profession of faith and Jesus says, don't be impressed by this. What I just told about, said about you is actually really easy. You're going to see things much greater than this. So just hang on. 
stick with me, and something greater and better will be seen. You'll see me go to a cross. You'll see me raised from the dead. You'll see me ascend into heaven. You will see these things with your eyes, yes, but they will become a reality in your heart. This reference at the very end, verse 51, is a reference to Genesis chapter 28. Jacob is on the run. Esau, he's stolen the birthright from Esau. Esau says he's going to kill him, and now he's running down where he's eventually going to meet Leah Leah and Rachel and that whole story. But he stops for the night, and he he goes to sleep, and he has this dream where he sees a, a stairway, the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that's the verse that Jesus quotes here. My favorite part of that story is when Jacob wakes up. He's seen this dream, and he says, Surely God was in this place, and I didn't know it. Surely God was in this place, and I didn't see it. He had, what was it he saw? He had a new spiritual understanding that he didn't have before. I can see things. I can make sense of my life in a way I've never been able to before. Upon, it's, a, it's a conversion experience for Jacob there. I see. It all makes sense to me now. God's been guiding this process of my life all along, and I, I, I wasn't able to see it before. He's given me the ability now to do so. Isn't that what we really want? I said earlier, there is hope for the unbeliever in your life. And you want them to say the exact same thing that Jacob said. Surely God has been all through this, and I've never been able to see it until now. As Jesus is saying of himself, that ladder that Jacob talked about, that's me. And he's not up at the top of the ladder saying, come on, humans. Start climbing. You can do it. I know you can. I believe in you. No, he he came down the ladder. He scooped us up, and he takes us up into heaven to be with him. He has connected heaven and earth. That's why we can see. There is hope for the unbeliever in our life that we love so dearly. There's hope for your spouse. There's hope for your friend and your sibling, your uncle and your grandmother. There's hope for my dad. We don't have to convert someone's heart and soul. We have to bring them to see Jesus. And they see him in God's word. There's something unique that happens when God's word is opened and read and preached. And that's where we want him to meet him. He has, made, he has met us in our seeking. He has called us to follow him. And now he is calling us to invite others to come and see. Would you do that? Would you take the challenge to invite someone to come and see Jesus, to come and meet this wonderful community of believers that you love and that, you, or that minister to you and you found some, such grace and peace through? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would give us great confidence in what it can do, great confidence in the very message of the gospel, that there's power in it, There's power in your word. It's not just any other book. It's not just any other message. It's a message that you convert sinners. It's a message where you take people from darkness and you transfer them into light. It's a message where people could not see you working in their lives, and now they can. It's a message that there was no reason for repentance. There was no understanding of sin, and now they see Lord, would you give us that same hope? And Lord, would you give us a love for those of us in our sphere of influence in our life that that do not know you and love you, and that you would use us as your instruments to bring them to Christ? Holy Spirit, would you give us a burden for that? 
not guilt, but an excitement and a joy to tell of others what you have done for us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.